Weiler. I'm Jordan Sorokin. And I'm Erica Senior. Welcome to Brains and Bourbon, a show about cocktails and neuroscience brought to you by Neurite West and KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM. Each week, we invite a neuroscientist to discuss the process and motivation behind their science and to share their favorite cocktail with us. This week, our guest is Lucy O'Brien, Assistant Professor in the Department of Molecular and Cellular Physiology at Stanford. Thanks for joining us this week, Lucy. Thanks for having me here. So, uh, Lucy, we usually have cocktails on our show, um, but we have your favorite drink, a chocolate recovery shake. Can you tell us how to make this? This this is a really important functional drink for me. Mm -hmm. um, after after a hard workout, nothing goes down better than this. So this is this is Hammer Gel brand chocolate flavored Recoverite. Wow! Mixed up in the blender with almond milk, um, a Starbucks Via, and Eric, I saw you brought the dark roast, uh -huh. which is the right choice <laughs> for that, and uh, some ice cubes. Wonderful. So what kind of working out do you do when you have this drink? This drink usually comes after a long bike ride. Okay. Where do you like to cycle mostly? That's been a real treat about coming to Stanford is the incredible cycling opportunities right. here. So I'm exploring the routes to the coast, um, yeah. going down to Pescadero, San Gregorio, and, and back. And... Yeah. We have a, a friend of ours, Astra. She's a sixth year. Um, is she sixth year or fifth year? She's a... I don't know. She's up there. Um, <laughs> and she's training with... We love you, Astra. She, yeah, we love you. She's training with Kelly, um, who's also in her year, for a 100-mile ride. Nice. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I don't know where they are right now. I think they're at, like, mile 70 or so. Wow. Nice. Yeah. Well, let's try this. You yeah, can tell her... Uh, yeah. She yeah. should have the recovery shake after. Yeah, cheers, yeah. Astra. Cheers. Cheers. Mm. Ooh, that's good. The mm, colorful straws good. are a really nice touch that you really can't appreciate <laughs> as a radio audience, but you can imagine. Oh, that's very coffee. I like it. This is going to be a very energetic <laughs> brains. Yeah. And this is brains and coffee, craniums and coffee. <laughs> the blender is key. Yeah. Actually, that was a recent discovery. Um, so. One of the things we wanted to ask you about, we just started talking about doing bike rides and all kinds of fun stuff that you can do around Stanford. But um, on your on your website, you talked about sort of how you became um, how you became interested in biology, and it seems to have started sort of just with a, a love of nature. Can you tell us a little bit about sort of where you grew up and and how you um, how you decided to become a biologist? I grew up in Northern Virginia near DC and been to spend a lot of time hanging out in the backyard. Um, I loved exploring the critters in the backyard, uh, no matter the cute ones, but also the kind of disgusting ones. So mm. I remember one time finding a naked dead baby bird in the grass and I was fascinated and I put it in a jar and brought it inside. My parents let me keep this for a long time. <laughs> How old were you? And I think five or six. Wow. Um, and looking back, I was like, you know, not every mom would let their kid do that. So uh, they really did a lot to encourage and instill curiosity about nature and um, about the power mm. of observation. Mm -hmm. So how long how long did you end up keeping this dead creature? I have to say I don't quite remember anymore. <laughs> it's it it's not in my parents' basement now. Okay. I'm pretty oh. sure. Okay, they got rid of it once you moved off to college. <laughs> and all so did you ever have any uh, other animals in your collection, or was it just the one bird? Um, dead sea dead sea creatures. I used to keep those. Yeah, yeah. that you can find on the beach. Um, I oh, don't yeah. remember any mammals, insects. Uh -huh. The 17-year locusts, I remember there was one year where they came out, I must have collected hundreds of the cases wow. um, when they crawl out of the ground under the trunks of the trees and a huge collection of those. Cool. So what would you do with these? Would you try to dissect them or just look at them? I I poke at them, try to open them up, and uh -huh. I, I just kind of liked having them there and looking at them. And how did you... Um... So th then you went off and, and decided to study biology more seriously. And you mentioned that one of the things that you found uh, inspiring was um, Judson's Eighth Day of Creation. Yeah, my father book. gave me that book as a as a present when I was a teenager. Uh -huh. And what did you find? What did you find inspiring about it? 
Um, it's about the story of the discovery of the DNA of DNA and the the early early days of molecular biology, the the golden era, as you mm -hmm. um, as you had mentioned. And what really struck me reading that book was how it was this adventure story of people trying to figure out mysteries of things that they couldn't actually see, things that were real that existed, but not anything that you could touch or observe directly, and that by doing the right experiments, you could unlock the code to figure out these things. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And that there was a, a community of people who did this with all the, the human drama and intrigue that can come along with, with human communities and that this was all happening in pursuit of this mystery um, really, really took root in my brain. Hmm. And so how did you, how did you then, um, then pursue that, that desire? I started, uh, actually in college thinking I wanted to work in molecular biology hmm. and, uh, work on DNA transcription and, and transcriptional activation. Um, I was at Harvard and I remember in particular a class taught by Mark Potashny and that was really formative. Um, but then in grad school through happenstance, I, I started to explore things on a more cellular level and I found that that was really my sweet spot mm. more, than, um, more than the molecular stuff. So actually, ironically enough, things that you can see mm. with some help. At least with a microscope. With, right? with <laughs> so do you think that same sort of adventure story exists now? Would you, do you think you're writing your own adventure story with your science? Absolutely. I, it, one of the uh, thrills about starting, starting our group here at Stanford is actually feeling like there's a community of folks now and that we're all on this adventure mm -hmm. together um, going uh, deep into the fly midgut. How many other labs are studying similar? The midgut stem cells that we study were discovered less than 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And so it still has that feel of being a frontier, of being in these early days where we know some things, but we really don't know mm -hmm. that much. Um, and so a junior high or high school student could come in and ask me questions that we don't know the answers to yet. Um, mm -hmm. It's so, exciting to feel like you're on the frontier like that. It is. Yeah. It is. It is a cool feeling. So, when you're in such an undeveloped field, how do you decide where to start? Erica, that's a great question. For me, it's always come down to what strikes an emotional chord, mm -hmm. and then starting from that, perhaps not very scientific origin. Um, trying to think of the experiments that we could do to move in that in that direction. So can you um, just explain what a stem cell is, what the properties of these cells that makes it different from the normal uh, gut cells? Yeah, stem cell is a word that gets a lot of, of press in the media. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that attention is focused around embryonic stem cells, for instance, which can then divide and divide and divide and become an entire being. Uh -huh. Um, or stem cells for that are being manipulated in a dish to then be introduced to people in the context of of disease therapy. Mm -hmm. The stem cells that that we study are a slightly different breed. They exist in almost all of our tissues, and what they do is generate new cells to replace cells that are lost. Mm -hmm. So over the course of a year, we'll actually lose a mass of cells that's roughly equal to our own body weight. Mm -hmm. And in most of our tissues, it's their resident stem cells that make the new cells to replace these lost ones. So then what, what uh, tells the stem cell to become skin cell or skin tissue or eyeball or hair or whatever? Stem cells are more pliable than we think mm -hmm. and that a lot of what tells a skin stem cell it's a skin stem cell and a gut stem cell it's a gut stem cell is its surrounding environment uh -huh. you can actually take certain types for instance you can take a, a testis stem cell and transplant it into 
a mammary gland and it'll start to function as a mammary stem cell. Mm. Is that true for all stem cells? I don't I don't know about the negative results. Sure. <laughs> I know you can go the other way too. You can take a single mammary stem cell and transplant mm -hmm. it into the, the right place in a testis and it'll become a testis stem cell. Pretty crazy. Yeah. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, I wonder if it's because they're um well, they're not the same system, obviously, but I mean it's different I well, I don't know, but I would imagine that it's somewhat different than a than a brain stem cell. If maybe they're like stem cells have that are more similar in their function are able to transform more easily than others. I don't know if that's known or not. Um, or if you would happen to know. Yeah, I, I actually don't don't know either. I haven't heard of people I haven't heard of people trying to transplant brain stem cells. Into and testes? Really? That's surprising. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the NIH hasn't funded right. that one yet. Yeah. Listen to that NIH. Get, get a, a grant request. So could you, well, could you tell us sort of how you, how you came to study the, the fly midgut? Where was, what, what was that moment where it was like, this is going to take me somewhere? I, there, there were two moments in particular. One was in December 2005 um, at the ASCB at the meeting for the American Society for Cell Biology in San Francisco. And I uh, went to a talk given by Ben Olstein, who was in Alan Spradling's lab at the time, who had, and he had, Ben had just discovered these gut stem cells. It hadn't been published yet. Um, it was going to come out in Nature the following month, but he gave this talk, mm -hmm. and uh, I was enraptured by the idea that there are stem cells in the fly that actually renew tissues. So so before Ben and Alan and their the co-discoverers, Craig McKelly and Norbert Paramone, it was thought that the only dividing cells in an adult fly were in the fly gonads, mm -hmm. um, and the discovery that they're so they're finding that they're actually cells in functioning tissues in the fly that are dividing, and that in fact these are stem cells that are replacing dying mm -hmm. cells in the gut epithelium. That was old hat for mammals, but new for us fly folks. I had studied epithelia in grad school, and. Um, really like thinking about the architectural properties of epithelial tissues. And so it seemed like this perfect marriage of of stem cell biology and epithelial tissue biology. Mm. But the defining moment came in my postdoc when my postdoc advisor, David Builder, was like, you should just, why don't you just take a look at some guts, just see what they look like. And so I finally opened up a fly, and it took me a while before I figured out which part of it was actually the gut. <laughs> Again, very small, very delicate. <laughs> There's all like white, squishy stuff inside <laughs> these animals. And when you looked at it on the confocal, it was absolutely the most beautiful epithelium that I had ever seen. And it was, was love at first sight. It was, it was a religious experience. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, I can spend the rest of my life looking at this tissue and its mysteries. So it's really a gut impulse. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I've was, never heard that. Oh my no. God. <laughs> I was waiting for that. So can you describe what the epithelium looks like? It has the features of, of a lot of epithelial tissues in general. If you think of bathroom tile mm -hmm. and how it's all hexagons, and then you change it to be a mix of hexagons and pentagons, mm -hmm with a few squares and heptagons thrown in, you have an epithelium. Hmm. It's sort of a mosaic of... It's a, it's a tiled mosaic, and it's a single, it's one cell thick. But then studded within this cobblestone array are cells that are perhaps a fifth, an eighth of the size of the real gut cells. Mm-hmm. And these are the stem cells, so they're much smaller, and they're like little jewels hmm. embedded between the cobblestones. Um, and then if you imagine a whole sheet or floor of these cobblestones, then the stem cell jewels are scattered throughout. Hmm. Mm -hmm. So are the stem cells there 
uh, throughout the whole animal's life, just waiting to be turned on to to divide into the epithelium? Yeah, that's a great question because flies, of course, go through metamorphosis mm -hmm. and through a process that we don't understand. These stem cells are already there; they're already specified early in fly development, mm -hmm. and somehow when the fly goes through metamorphosis and becomes an adult and develops its adult gut, then these cells rise to the occasion and, and take their mm. place. But they're, they're not functioning in the early developmental stages of the fly. But do they, they're, they're dormant, but they have the same quote-unquote properties, like they have the same structure and the same... They look similar. Yeah. They express some, but not all of the genes that they'll characteristically express in mm -hmm. the adult so, mm -hmm. so they're there, they're hanging out. And it's not known what triggers them to... No, hmm. to what awakens them when the time is right. right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's a mystery. Hmm. So one of the big topics that you um, are studying with these, with these gut stem cells is this idea of um, adaptive remodeling, that the body and organs can actually change themselves um, in response to different changes in their environment. Um, could you talk a little bit about how these stem cells actually, I mean, we usually think of stem cells as being there to sort of replace tissues as you get older, you know, in, in neuroscience or, you know, the white blood cell um, stem cells in bone marrow. They're there to just, you know, replace parts as they, as they die. But something else seems to be going on here. Yeah, Nick, that's right. What we found is that these stem cells don't just renew cells that are dead, that are lost or sloughed off, but that they can actually make extra cells so that the organ gets bigger in times of need. Hmm. Um, if you think about it, sure, we're done growing and developing, but a lot of tissues in our body retain the capacity to change in response to environmental or physiological demands. So when we go up to high altitude, we develop more red blood cells um, to handle the hypoxia. Mm -hmm. When we lift heavy weights, our muscles get bigger. Mm -hmm. Well, when we are eating a lot of food over a long period of time, our intestines get bigger. Or mm -hmm. if we're in a state of prolonged fastings, our intestines will, will shrink down. Mm -hmm. And at least in the fly, what we found is that the gut stem cells are a major player in letting organs grow in response to high functional demand that's placed on them. Hmm. So do humans also have these gut stem cells? Humans do have, have gut stem cells, have small have stem cells throughout the GI tract. Mm -hmm. um, the midgut's probably most analogous to the vertebrate small intestine. And there are some certainly vertebrate GI tracts grow and shrink in response to dietary load. There are some great examples of this, like hibernating mammals, for instance. Mm -hmm. in, in the winter months, their guts sh shrink down to just a remnant of what they were in the summer months. But the exact roles of the stem cells in this process wasn't known before. Mm -hmm. So is the idea that the gut is continuously in this state of shrinking and that the stem cells maintain the size, or do they play an active role in both growth and decreasing size. Yeah, so Jordan, what we find in the gut is that during prolonged fasting, the stem cells will shut down, okay. so they'll stop contributing to the problem. But there's an additional layer on top of that, which is that a lot of the differentiated cells will kill themselves oh, and okay. slough off faster than they normally would mm -hmm. to accelerate that shrinkage. Hmm. So this sounds like a really energetic process. So are these are these expansions taking place when there's abundance of food, and what's the process there? Yeah, what what we found is since, like you said, it's the abundance of food that's triggering this, uh -huh. and it turns out that a main growth signal in the fly gut driving this process is insulin. And it's actually not the systemic endocrine insulin that's coursing through the whole body. The gut has its own little local stash of mm. insulin production huh. that is acutely sensitive to changes in, in dietary load. And that's what's primarily talking to the gut stem cells. So does this allow the animal to then eat more and then 
get their like does the energy then get transferred to the fat cells or in times of starvation can they use those cells sort of the same way you would use a fat cell and break it down for energy for the rest of the body yeah that's a great question i don't know the answer to that what we found is that we can use genetic tricks to artificially jack up insulin even when the fly is being fasted uh -huh. and the gut doesn't know any better the stem cells will activate growth and the gut will grow but then that's depleting energy reserves from the rest of the fly more rapidly and they'll die faster than flies normally would when they're starved mm -hmm. so the stem how did the stem cells actually sense the changes in insulin they it's we know it's through insulin receptor that's displayed on the surface of stem cells is does that yeah so the yeah so you? they actually are acting sort of as as sensors they're not just making they're not just there to replenish the gut but they're actually d deciding when um there's extra nutrition there yeah nick the term sensors that's an interesting term and i think at some level it's semantics mm -hmm. um you could call them nutrients you could call stem cells as nutrient sensors or or functional demand sensors. Mm -hmm. I'd like to think of stem cells as actually the the agents of the change mm -hmm. rather than the sensors of the change. Mm -hmm. Because I think from the standpoint of the organ itself, the stem cells are there to serve the needs of the organ. And so the organ that's being communicated through insulin to the stem cells who then carry out the carry out the the process mm. if and you so will is, the sen is 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 sensing the demand sensing the environmental change where the insulin is secreted instead right which is really that's a really interesting dimension too so like like our guts fly guts have layer of visceral muscle that surrounds them and that's what that's what drives peristalsis that moves food along our gut tubes and along the fly's gut tubes insulin is actually coming from this muscle layer mm -hmm. That surrounds the gut. It's endogenously too. secreted from the muscle. Exactly. Exactly. So, have there been studies where they artificially puff insulin, like concentrate insulin, into different parts and see a growth of that local region? We are trying to do that. We yeah. are trying to figure out a way to kind of puff out the gut and see if it could, right. if one factor in turning on insulin expression is just distension of the mm -hmm. gut when the animal feeds. Is there any understanding of how long that takes? The extend not at a not at a uh at that fine grain scale. level yeah. um i can tell you half a day but mm. i don't in terms of time between like the real-time imaging of food entering the fly gut mm -hmm. and then when insulin turns on we don't know even half a day i mean i'm not an expert or anything but that seems pretty fast i mean that's it oh that's but interesting but that if you think like dog years, like seven to one, oh, human sure. years, and yeah, then sure. in fly years, fly months, fly, <laughs> fly So you don't think, do you suspect that that's a there's a different time course for larger animals? I think so. We can see sign, classic signs of aging in the gut after two and a half weeks, I three see. weeks for a fly. Okay. That's interesting. So are these, are these we, we, I anyway think of stem cells as being kind of, the same everywhere. I mean, when you, when you have induced pluripotent stem cells, it's because you can take cells from one part of the body and turn them into stem cells that can become any kind of tissue. So, are these are these stem cells in the in the fly gut the same as stem cells elsewhere in the body, or do they have their own unique properties? I mean, how do you can you can you use these to study processes in stem cells in general, or is it are you are you very specifically interested in how stem cells are in, integrated into the gut. Gotcha. One bigger question that we're hoping that these humble fly gut stem cells <laughs> will shed light on is how dispersed stem cell populations can communicate across the spatial expanse of a whole organ. So like I mentioned, if you imagine a floor, a bathroom tile, and the stem cells spaced all along them, as the organ is growing and shrinking, this dispersed population coordinates itself in concert. Um, the stem cells always stay at 20% of all the cells in the gut, mm -hmm. no matter how big or small the gut is. And when you look at their dispersal, they also stay spaced out throughout the gut, which 
makes sense because if you're in a mode of renewal, you don't want to have stem cell deserts and then places that a lot of stem cells. You want them to be spread out. And in fact, a lot of solid organs in our bodies, not the brain, but a lot of the epithelial organs like lung or mammary gland also have these spaced out stem cells. And mm. the mammary gland, for instance, during pregnancy goes through massive growth and expansion. Mm -hmm. So so we're hoping that we can figure out how this scaling effect works in the fly, and that might shed light on other other solid epithelial organs as well. Yeah, I, I wonder, I don't know if this is known, but is the idea that stem cells, for example, in this case, you said they, they're about 20% of the total epithelial cell population. It's a pretty high percentage. I yeah. Um, I'm wondering, is it that they... They divide with a certain probability, like a four to one, that they divide into a different lineage, and that is what maintains it, or is it a more intelligent system than just probability speaking? Right. We'd love to answer those kinds of questions. We know that they can divide symmetrically and asymmetrically, and we know that if we take a snapshot at different points in time, the ratio of symmetric to asymmetric divisions at the level of the whole population changes. We also know that single stem cells can switch back and forth. So mm -hmm. we can tell by various genetic tricks that a stem cell divided asymmetrically in one cycle and then symmetrically in the next or vice versa. Mm -hmm. So there seems to be a lot of flexibility both in the stem cell population as a whole mm -hmm. and in the behavior of individual stem cells. Mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. I think that's probably key to enabling stem cells to be the, the agents of remodeling and of change in these organs. Mm. So um, I think understanding how, how the gut is able to, um, to reshape itself in response to the environment seems like it would have a lot of clinical consequences. I mean, understanding how, um, how our bodies actually change based on how we're eating. I, I, I think that's a fascinating angle to to speculate about. Um, I ha I'd have to say that I think most of it is rampant speculation at this point. Probably the from from my vantage, one of perhaps the the most plausible sort of scenario would be a situation like short bowel syndrome, where people have lost large regions of their intestines, uh, perhaps most of their, the majority of the length of their intestines, and simply can't absorb the nutrients that they need to live. And if there is a way to manipulate the function of the stem cells that remain to, to augment what they can do and to actually try to grow back some of that absorptive capacity, um, mm -hmm. that would make a real difference for people. Is there a point where... Um do you think this becomes involved in cases of, I don't know, malnourishment or, you know, people who, you know, we have an obesity epidemic in the U.S.? I mean, is this something where understanding the role of stem cells could help us understand what's going wrong and help people who have these nutritional issues? Right. So, again, so the fantasy would be some <laughs> pill you would take that would inhibit your gut stem cells. Keep your keep your intestines small, and you can eat all you want, but it's <laughs> not going to get absorbed. It'll just pass right through, or just explode your stomach. <laughs> <laughs> right, there are always side effects. That would just be on the side of the bottle. May explode your stomach. <laughs> um, I guess yeah. So I mean, it clearly clearly this is you know early days of you know the basic science of understanding what the role of these stem cells are. Um, I think I think what I'm trying to get at is just sort of the 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 higher level picture of what is it, what do we get from understanding um, these sort of adaptive changes and and how stem cells are um, are involved in them? What does this what does this tell us about how our biology works? Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting. There, there, from a sort of scientific health standpoint, I think there there are two angles to get at it. One is if we're going to use stem cells in regenerative therapies and we want them to do certain things, we need to understand how the native stem cells that are doing this normally all the time in our tissues work and what signals they're responding to so that mm -hmm. we can get 
the therapeutic stem cells to behave the way that we really want. Hmm. Um, the second is that maybe we can even avoid the need to, to introduce stem cells from a dish if we can figure out how to target the stem cells that are already present mm -hmm. in our tissues. At a, a more philosophical level, I think uh, for me there's a message of hope and optimism even as I get older and older that that we're always capable of change and we're always capable of adapting and of rising to the new situation that is presented to us. Mm. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable that, I mean, I'm not sure, I don't rem remember when stem cells were originally discovered, but I mean, certainly the doctrine for a long time was that the brain doesn't make any new cells. And I think it's only fairly recently that we've come to understand that, yeah, the body is regenerating itself and readjusting itself all the time. It's it's a really hopeful message. It's, mm. it's full of optimism. It's mm. not all over once development ends, baby. <laughs> <laughs> so then what happens to the stem cells as the animal ages? Why do we eventually die? Why things? do we die? Yeah, why do we die? <laughs> That's a question. Uh, people throw around telomeres, right? <laughs> Erica, that is one of the ultimate mysteries. And I don't know the answer to that. But one big part of it comes back again to insulin. Mm. And um, if you inhibit insulin signaling in stem cells in a fly, you will slow down the aging process in that mm. fly. So, so um, a lot of folks might have heard that uh, caloric restriction mm -hmm. makes all kinds of different animals live longer mm -hmm. and a lot of this longevity is due to reduced insulin signaling at least in flies um, Henry Jasper at the Buck Institute has shown that down regulating insulin signaling in gut stem cells only in gut stem cells mm -hmm. actually recapitulates these effects and a bigger picture that's emerging is that Insulin signaling talks to stem cell populations in many, many different tissues of our body. Mm -hmm. And so that there's a, a meta role, if you will, for insulin pathway um, that probably relates to endocrine, endocrine roles knitting mm -hmm. together with uh, tissue renewal and tissue maintenance and tissue growth. So do yeah. you think there's a sorry, do you think there's a connection between the insulin activity in the gut stem cells and the rest of the body? So why would it be so specific to the gut that you see the, uh, uh, the same effect? Yeah, I think it's because the gut, in terms of feeding, uh -huh. the gut is where the rubber meets the road. Mm -hmm. um, so the gut is the first place that's going to um, going to detect the uh, ingested food, mm -hmm. and then the gut is the bottleneck, if you will, for for processing that food and for getting energy to the rest of the body. So we'll see when a fly starts to feed, this local gut insulin spikes within 12 hours. It actually takes a day or two, and the change is much more moderate to see systemic insulin levels than... I see. Rise so up. is the idea then the gut sort of gets the signal, hey, there's insulin, and then it tells the rest of the body, hey, guys, there's insulin, do stuff. Yeah, yeah. And it's an interesting chicken and egg question in terms of if you don't get a response in the gut, is the rest of the animal, are the rest of the tissues in the body going to even know that food has arrived? Do you mm. need the gut to respond first and have increased nutrient transport through the gut, which then would feed into the endocrine organs that control systemic insulin production. So, does, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, sorry. Okay. Um, does higher insulin increase, like, the bioavailability of nutrients, like the absorption and distribution? Oh, that's a good question. I actually, I actually don't know, like, for instance, can they digest food more efficiently? And tr yeah, and transfer nutrients to other necessary parts of the body. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, I don't know if th this is somewhat related, and it kind of goes back to our conversation two minutes ago. But correct me if I'm wrong, but I've heard and read that higher insulin can feed cancer cells as well. Is that the idea that there's like a similar pathway involved with them, given that they're kind of like 
in a way, like stem cells that are going out of control. Right, because insulin does have important roles in growth and, and during developmental growth, insulin is a key signal um, promoting that and coordinating growth throughout different organs in, in a developing body. And so for tumors to co-opt that growth signaling pathway mm-hmm. and, and use it to help augment Tumor development growth, yeah. is it. It doesn't seem to be one of the signals that initiates tumor. So when you hear about cancers developing through multiple genetic hits, um, insulin receptor mutations is not one of the primary hits that that comes out of that. Huh. So how has the transition now to Stanford been for you, coming from UCSF and Berkeley? And- yeah, you did kind of the Bay Area trifecta, right? I, I hit the Bay Area trifecta, yes. Although um, with each move has brought me to a region that's 10 degrees warmer than the prior <laughs> one. So I've gone from sweaters In to Francisco, uh, long right. sleeve shirts to you know, shorts and T-shirts. We're moving in the right direction. <laughs> <laughs> um, and... Um, so what? But you so you just started your lab about a a year and a half ago. Um, and what is um, how is how has that has that process been of switching gears from being a a postdoc to a uh, to a PI? How is that? How has that it's been? It's been it's been really fun. And I think one of the most fun things about it is having having a sense that um, I'm not breaking trail on my own anymore. I have an amazing, fun, inspired group of people mm. who are my companions on this adventure. One of one of the moments that that really struck me a few months in, um, we were coming back from a seminar and kind of chatting and someone in my group said, But those stem cells that they were showing didn't look like our stem cells. <laughs> and I was like our stem cells, yeah. Our midget stem cells. How was the process of finding students to work with you? How do you? Yeah, how go do you about go about doing that? Ask, I would, I'll have a better answer for that probably in a few years. <laughs> I, um, I have three students right now. They're all awesome. I felt like each of them found me, kind of like how they say cats, like stray cats. Like you don't go find a cat. You just call your students stray cats. They find (laughs) you. (laughs) Oops. I didn't quite mean it like that. Just don't don't let them know that you were interviewed. They won't listen. I think stray cats are a very good metaphor for graduate students. Yeah. Yeah, Or vice versa. Feel like a stray cat sometimes. Is there kind of independent? But then if you put food out, exactly, they'll sort of come in the middle of the night. They're gonna do their own thing, but you do need to be there. They rely on you, but they're not gonna let you know. Right. One one thing that I think um, draws people to to the gut, to the to the mid gut, and to the work we're doing is folks who like to think visually about things in space and time. Mm And um, and so that's one one thing yeah. I see. Yeah. Mm. I like what you said before about make about you know having people join you on on this adventure um, because you are you know you're kind of an adventurer. You like being in the outdoors. You have a kayak exploration group and so on. I mean, do you do you see your science as being like an adventure? Absolutely. I think at a at a at a deep deep level. Mentally, the process of doing science feels very much like the process of doing a wilderness expedition. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's a, a group of us. We're going forward. People have different strengths and weaknesses. Some things you can only do. Um, some things are really fun, amazing, as- inspiring. Other things just really suck, and you just have to do them. <laughs> And yeah, and you don't know you don't know what's going to happen necessarily. Yeah, yeah, you've got to be ready for all kinds of things to happen. Yeah, 
So being a cell biologist requires you to be indoors a lot, in lab a lot. So did you ever consider doing a type of science that allows you to be out in the field more? Yeah, that's interesting. I had I had a stint between college and grad school where I did field work in national parks and I also worked on a sheep farm mm. in Toulouse for a few months. Erica, I have to say I I really like the division. Yeah. I really like being able to go outside and feel like that's there that's for you to... one persona and yeah. that's one thing and and a, a, a different kind of space and being in lab and being adventurous in the micro world and the macro world yeah hmm. i guess i can see how doing a lot of field work every time like everywhere just feels like you're in the office yeah yeah, yeah you can't escape yeah unless you go inside i guess you go inside <laughs> yeah what, what type of field work did you do if you don't mind us asking i surveyed um breeding birds and ducks um in montana and i also did uh salmon hatchling surveys in uh, Washington State on the Olympic Peninsula. Hmm. Wow. Some very That's beautiful cool. places. Yeah. 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 I, I developed, uh, when I was in Montana, I actually picked up a taste for country music that I haven't yet yeah. been able to shake to listen <laughs> for this day. Do you know the band Zach Brown Band? That's a great country music band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> and And I have to say, it's not like, the cool country necessarily right. it's like the hot nashville hits yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. did you say you also took some time off between graduate school and a postdoc i took three years off between grad school and postdoc and i was a ski bum kayak bum wow awesome thanks yeah, to it's... support from my boyfriend now husband oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> enabled that phase of my life was it's it some... oh, sorry, go ahead. I, was I was gonna say was it difficult for you to come back to science after taking three years of being like fun, <laughs> having fun. <laughs> you know, two things. Uh, uh, there, there are two ways to answer that that question. Was it difficult in terms of um, finding a postdoc right. and in terms of how science works, and then was it difficult mentally? And for both of them, I'd say the answer was no. Mm. I, I was, I perhaps not not entirely coincidentally chose a postdoc mentor who understood what I did and was supportive that I had done it and mm -hmm. it didn't compromise how he saw me as a scientist and um and I think having that break was first it was it was a great chance to get different perspective and to interact with a lot of people where I was the only PhD that they had ever really interacted with one-on-one -on -one and mm -hmm. perhaps ever will. Um, and I think about those things a lot and, and those people in my role, in my officially anointed role <laughs> that I have now. Mm -hmm. As far as, like, how you communicate your science to others. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting. After three years away, I came back and I was like, people are still working on all the same questions <laughs> and all the same problems. And yeah. it hasn't changed that much. Yeah. The pace yeah. of science is Very... pretty, you know, slow and, and methodical. Yeah. So was the plan to always come back then? Or was it something that you were thinking about while you were gone? It It was. I started... At UCSF, um, there was a incredible outdoors cooperative, and it was very inexpensive for for students to take classes through the co-op and to rent gear. So I learned to ski and I learned to kayak. Um, I married my ski instructor <laughs> um, that I met through through that program, and and so when I was doing these things and going out on occasional weekends and trying them out. You know, I was like, it would be so cool to immerse myself in this mm -hmm. full time and be able to hit every powder day or hit every day that ocean conditions are perfect and just be with that rhythm. Um, 
and so I hatched a plan in grad school that I was gonna I was gonna do this and start saving my money for that. And I I knew I would come back. I wasn't quite sure when. Mm-hmm. Um, but after after about two and a half years, when some people were like, "So is she ever gonna come back?" Um, it it hit me that yeah, this was great, but this was great. This was fun, but science is where you can make a difference in society. Mm-hmm. And yeah, once that once that flipped, then I started applying for postdocs. You think it's affected your sort of perspective and and on on doing science or on life? I mean, in a way that would be different than if you'd just gone straight into a postdoc after graduate school? Absolutely. I'm it some scientists i think are 110% devoted to their science and there is nothing that that is the end all be the be all i i know that there, it is literally a big world out there mm-hmm. and that that is a source of strength i think and um and it's a source of strength when scientifically things get get hard that um there's more it's okay if the science isn't going great at this moment because there are a lot of other amazing things in the universe given so, or, uh given that what you just said do you ever take your students out on out like outings if they're having a particularly rough thursday afternoon <laughs> all, right, all right i'm getting you on the river <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we are going to shoot bows and arrows at Target. Oh, that's awesome. That's Wait, on Sanford's campus or where? At, there's a range in Pacifica, uh-huh. I've been told. This will this will be new for me, too. Cool. That's so, so uh, I'm, uh, yeah, I'll probably have something I'm going to stick on my Target to aim for when I'm when I'm shooting for that. Just aim for the stem cell. It's the smallest one. <laughs> um, okay, so... I th- um, why don't we why don't we play our game now? Um, so in this in this game, which we call Not My Field, uh, we'll read you three titles of science papers, and you have to tell us which one of the three is a real paper title and which two we made up. Uh, the game. Has... I know she just strategically switched your monitor, so I can't peek. And... <laughs> That's exactly right. I know that. I know. Yeah, <laughs> we've had cheaters before. I won't name names. Um, so the the game is going to have three rounds. So you just have to get two of three right, um, or um, we don't really have a prize, but uh, if you don't, you have to take another drink. Um, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, let's play. Round one uh, we call enrichment. So um, option A, dull affect in adolescent males exacerbated by the board game Boggle. Option B, may I curse a referee? Swear words and consequences. And option C, red but not other color toy wheels decrease Cox 1 activity and the pro-inflammatory signaling cascade in rodents. It's got to be B. Swear words, referees, sounds like the World Cup, sounds topical. So sounds just been on our minds. Invented. Sounds like it was on your minds. <laughs> well, one of these is true and two of these are false. Oh, I got it wrong. So I have to guess the true one. Yeah, I have to guess the true one. So number one was dull affect in adolescent males exacerbated by the board game Boggle. Number two was may I curse a referee, swear words and consequences. And number three was red but not other color toy wheels decrease Cox 1 activity. Um, I think C is the legitimate title. Okay. We'll read you the, uh, the answer. The answer from the Journal of Sports, Science, and Medicine the purpose of this study was to determine whether ah! male and female soccer referees would execute the laws of the game ah! despite players' verbal abuse. We can give ah! you that one. You yeah, totally had it. Yeah, had it. We talked you out of it. I talked That's, you out yeah. of it. Is there, um, is there a prize for being absolutely wrong? Um, yeah, well, we've, we've actually had that for the last, I think, three. The last is three it, people in a row. Yeah, it's your humiliation zero. is the prize. <laughs> <laughs> but you're in very good company. But, okay, well, but we're going to give you that one because you yeah, did say I B. Think that, I, think yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. All right. I'm glad you went for the third one, though. I wrote that and it made me feel good. <laughs> I, it's always, okay, it's like always I'll throw in a gene name. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was like, 
Um, I guess I'll take the next. This next category is food. So is it A, rare uh, appendicitis-like syndrome, the case of the obstructing broccoli? Is it B, acai smoothie extract correlated with improved spatial navigation in rats? Or is it C, this is your brain on chocolate, markers of oxytocin signaling following the direct application of cocoa powder to brain slices? I like the chocolate one. Yeah. I'm a, is it, I'm a big Is it because we're drinking chocolate? We're, we're drinking chocolate. <laughs> we're drinking a smoothie too, so that's a little tough, but, yeah. but chocolate, it all comes down to chocolate some days. Yeah. Um, I agree with you. I'm going to read you the abstract. So this is from Case Reports in Medicine, 2014. The diagnosis of acute appendicitis can be somewhat obscure in a oh. patient that presents with low, right lower quadrant normal pain. <laughs> so it happened to be the obstructing broccoli. The broccoli. The broccoli. I know it's the it's the most ridiculous sounding title too. Right? <laughs> All right, so you're one for two. Let's let's say one for two. One okay, for two. so this is That's the last generous. one. Okay, so the topic is social science. So is it option A, tweeting it off? Characteristics of adults who tweet about a weight loss attempt. Option B. Fairweather friends. Individuals living in temperate climates report more close personal relationships than those living in cold or hot climates. Or option C. Effects of different hats on the perceived intelligence of the hat wearer. So up to now, the most implausible title has been the correct answer. And I think <laughs> that the hat one is the most implausible All right, sounding I'm... journal title. <laughs> All right. I'll read you from the correct one. Um, so it's from the Journal of the American Medical Informatics Association. Participants rated their connections on Twitter and weight loss specific <laughs> social networks <laughs> to be significantly greater sources of positive social influence for their weight loss and significantly less sources of negative social influence than their offline friends, family, and Facebook friends. Ah, darn! <laughs> yeah, so darn. I guess... One for three, that's not Is bad. this going to predict whether I get tenure or not? Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> So the other two people who just got zero wrong, though, or I guess you got one right, uh, were... Through your interpretive graces, yes. Yes. <laughs> were Craig Heller and uh, Hank Greeley. So tenured, very <laughs> successful, you're in good company. <laughs> the future looks bright. Exactly. If you do well in this game, I think it's a bad, bad moment for you. <laughs> uh, so thank you so much for coming in today. This has been a really fun yeah. interview. Thanks. This has been super fun. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. And thank you all for listening. Come have a drink with us next week. Brains and Bourbon is a production of Neurite West and KZUSU Stanford 90.1 FM. This episode was produced by Julia Turan, Jordan Sorokin, Nick Weiler, and myself. You can find all of the past episodes of Brains and Bourbon, as well as our podcast Neurotalk, and read articles about everything you ever wanted to know about neuroscience by visiting our website at www.neuritewest.org, spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E-West.org. Sweet. Awesome.